there's a sense of urgency because we around the globe are in a crisis, a crisis of understanding of our identity as people, as cultures, as nations. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Abu Dhabi today, where FP is hosting our first ever culture summit in partnership with the Abu Dhabi Tourism and Culture Authority and TCP Ventures, an arts advisory firm. Culture Summit is a high-level gathering with over 400 participants from more than 80 countries worldwide. The objective is to bring together leaders from the worlds of government, the arts, and the media to address the role culture can play in addressing some of the great challenges of our time. We've just finished day two as we're recording this, where we focused on change agents and how the arts and media can play a vital role in creating positive social change. I'm really extremely uh, excited and grateful that I've got with me here today Deborah Rudder, President of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, Bob Lynch, President and CEO of Americans for the Arts, Darren Walker, President of the Ford Foundation, and Carla Derlikoff-Canales, CEO and Artistic Director of TCP Ventures, one of our partners for Culture Summit. So, recently, from a tiny studio not too far from the Persian Gulf here in Abu Dhabi, we had the following conversation. So this is, this is a kind of unusual event. We've got 400, it's actually closer to 450 people from 80 countries. About, what, half of them are artists? You know, together, talking to one another, and there's a really great energy, but I also sense a sense of urgency. Darren, do, do, I mean, is that something you're picking up on, and if so, why? I think, David, there's a sense of urgency because we, around the globe, are in a crisis, a crisis of understanding of our identity as people, as cultures, as nations. And the question is, will we be a globe populated by people who see interconnectedness, or will we be a planet of nations and people separated by borders and religions and cultures? I believe art and culture can help us bring a solution to this question. Well, you know, I think that frames this issue in a really important way, because it says art and culture are not luxuries. Art and culture are not simply adornments or the playthings of the rich. Art and culture are the glue that hold together civilization. They're tools that help us build bridges. They're the drivers of change in the world. And in some clear respects, they are the principal byproducts of civilization. That makes them serious business. And yet sometimes in Washington, where some of us live, it doesn't seem to be treated as, 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 as a, a, you know, a national priority. It seems to be an afterthought. Deborah, I mean, how, how, do, how do we get to that kind of cognitive breakdown? You know, it's interesting. I've been working in the world of art and culture for many decades now. And um, for quite a long time, we were fighting the fight of we need arts education. We need um, to live art for art's sake. And I think um, we really have come to a place where there's an understanding about the fact that art and culture define who we are. But there is such a divide 
between the people who understand and embrace and live that and those who are living in the world that says, oh, art and culture, that's for other people or for people who have free time and I have no free time. But what's so interesting is about the breadth and reach and meaning that art and culture bring to people's lives and frankly, the need to share, to understand one another. I was just recently with the National Symphony in Russia, of all times for an American orchestra to be in Russia. Sent there by the Trump administration? Sent there, uh, invited there by the Rostropovich Foundation. Um, But we were very closely connected to the government, our government, making sure, and ultimately their government as well, making sure that we were going in a good time and all of that. What's fascinating is the cultural connection that the orchestra made with everyday people, uh, with young artists certainly, but basically with audiences uh, there in Russia. And cultural exchange, we talk about that all the time. But what I found really even more interesting was in going and spending time with our sponsors, which we always have sponsors for this, we had three Russian three or four Russian sponsors, and maybe six American. A very big, uh, you'll be interested to know, Darren, a very big Russian foundation who love the Kennedy Center, love investing in the arts, and had very specifically invited us to be there, the Rostropovich Foundation, but then the Potanin Foundation as well. They wanted to bring American culture, representing and valuing Russian culture. The Russian companies, Exxon, BP, United Technologies, they wanted us there because they wanted to demonstrate that they, as an American company in Russia, employing Russians in their American company, were supporting an American orchestra coming to Russia and that exchange. And they spoke so clearly about the importance of cultural exchange. And I think that's what is really great about the conversations that we've been having here in Abu Dhabi, is the recognition of the increased awareness and importance of cultural exchange and how the arts and culture, not just performing arts or visual arts, but culture, what defines us, is really the only way we can come together and solve some of the world's problems. Well, you know, it is a centerpiece of this conference. And, you know, some people who are listening to this or who pick up FP and and read some of the work that we've been doing increasingly on the arts, you know, at first there's a kind of, you know, cognitive dissonance. They're like, what? FP, what are you doing that? Exactly. But cultural diplomacy has long been a centerpiece of diplomacy. And Carla, I know you've been a State Department envoy for over 10 years. Uh, Here at this event, we're honoring Madeleine Albright. We're honoring other diplomats from this region, but also some groups. uh, El Sistema, the Venezuelan Education Group, the Western Divan Orchestra, which brings together Israeli and Arab musicians to play, uh, and even Sesame Street, which is out there using their tools to help refugees and help people in Afghanistan. This is a central part of the thinking behind this conference. And I'm just wondering, what do you think the state of of cultural diplomacy is right now? Well, I think there's a huge opportunity for cultural diplomacy to play a stronger role in solving problems, essentially. Um, You know, my work as, as a State Department cultural envoy gave me the chance to do so essentially using music as a tool for soft power. And I think that's that's sort of a key phrase that has, I've heard come up a couple times here at the summit. 
in doing so, my approach as an artist has always been to look at what do we all have in common as the starting point. And when we look at that artistically, I feel that there's a huge opportunity in music and in the arts because it's a celebration of the human condition and essentially emotions. And no matter what culture you're from, what nationality you're from, we all laugh, we love, we cry, we feel pain, we feel joy. That's what the arts allow us to do. They allow us to express that, to explore that, and to question that. And so, you know, it to be able to come together and build trust across different belief systems and different cultures through what we have in common is the first step to me mm-hmm. in establishing an understanding and a bridge through which we can actually start to analyze our differences and perhaps look at those through new light. Well, in a world that's facing the challenges of globalization that we touched upon a moment ago, which both you know technology unifies, but it also produces backlash. Mm -hmm. Um, and in which there are many divisions where culture can play an important role in building bridges, solving problems. And also, by the way, we see uh, enemies like the Taliban or or ISIS destroying culture um, and thus revealing how powerful they think it is. Culture seems to be a very powerful force. And yet, Bob, you as, you know, kind of the designated arts advocate Mm -hmm. in the United States you know, are going around knocking on doors on Capitol Hill, dealing with uh, a, 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 an attitude in the United States where it doesn't seem that people recognize culture as a source of power. And they see it as kind of a, a line item, cost item. When you talk to people here at this event, do you, are you finding that there's other models? Do you find that there's bewilderment at what's going on in our country? What have you found? So th- what I find is that the, the value of the arts and the utility of the arts is basically uh, differently experienced in every country and in our country, different parts of our country as well. So I, I see it all here, and I see it all at home, and I'll, st- I'll start with America first. So in the United States, I have the privilege of working a lot with mayors and people at the local level. 5,000 local arts agency members of Americans for the Arts. I go to a city every week, um, and I have for the last 32 years. And every city is different, and the power structure is different, and the understanding of the value of the arts uh, is different. Some, like the city of Miami, for example, definitely understand the the value of the arts and invest in that value, um, and they have a very robust arts community and also the the value of the arts as a, an attractor of tourism or as something building industry there in the community is very well understood. Um, other communities, less so. But collectively, uh, in America, when I look at political structure, what I see is mayors and local leaders get it because that's about $4 billion worth of investment uh, at that level as opposed to the $148 million that the National Endowment for the Arts gets. And uh, with the National Endowment for the Arts, just uh, uh, the current struggle that we're seeing with NEA, NEH, the uh, Institute of Museum and Library Services, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, there, there is a real mix of um, leadership and opinion within the United States Congress on that. We have passionate people. Uh, Senator Udall, for example, on the Senate side, or the wonderful Louise Slaughter. But we also have passionate Republicans. Leonard Lance from New Jersey co-chairs the Congressional Arts Caucus. We just got 12 congresspeople to sign a, Republican congresspeople to sign a letter of support for, for all of those agencies just last week. So there are people who don't get it, don't understand it, and uh, hopefully they won't be at the end of the day the majority as we look at investment f- at the federal level. But the, the slack 
um, locally is is uh, looked at and very positively, in, to some extent, picked up, never enough, uh, at the local levels and the state levels. Now, I come here, and it's wonderful to see the energy and the enthusiasm in other countries, uh, 80 countries learning from one another, some really strong and really investing, like here in Abu Dhabi, that we see the, uh, the investment in, in the cultural uh, local community and international right here. We see that as something that they're using right as they uh, as they put on an expo for trade and they're putting culture and art right in the center of that so the idea of of art uh, and culture as a as a central attraction uh, and and also a systemic approach to solving other problems in communities is is uh, something that i see uh, in different american cities and in different countries here and so that's why we're all here trying to learn from one another some wonderful solutions to things uh, f ranging from terrorism problems the folks i was talking to from afghanistan and iraq today to problems that are economic to problems that are uh, dealing with women's issues and in every single case the arts are something that some only can aspire to, uh, and others are teaching as, as we go through the workshops here. So it's exciting. We've talked about using the arts as a tool for positive social change. And uh, there was a conversation that took place here um, that you participated in, Darren, in which you were talking about the vital importance of this. But you also said something interesting, which was that, you know, the artists must lead, you know, that, that you know, we can't expect governments to lead. And you didn't say this, but something I say sometimes is governments are lagging indicators. You know, they don't, they, they tend not to be out at the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. And artists are adventurers, they're explorers. They go where people don't, don't no normally go. And so I, I just w wondering if, you know, as you see, see and you sit in rooms like this, but also in your, your uh, daily life and you sort of say, where are the advocacy issues that artists are leading us to now? What is the what are the frontiers that 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 you're seeing? Be, you know, top the list of priorities. Well, artists are society's canary in the mine. We benefit from artists extraordinarily because they are the greatest risk takers in our society. And if you look over the narrative arc of history certainly 20th century history in the United States, artists are at the center of social progress and social change. Yes, we need scientists and technologists and entrepreneurs, but artists have often been willing to be courageous and say things to the powerful, demand that we be held to account, um, and call us out when there is injustice in our society. So. We need artists today more than ever. Here in Abu Dhabi, the thing I am impressed with is that the Emiratis understand that an investment in soft power increases your capacity to have goodwill globally. They're taking really um, right out of the, the playbook of the United States in the 1960s. We understood this, which is why there was such a huge investment in the State Department programs for people-to-people -people exchanges, sending abroad performing arts, Dance Theater of Harlem, Alvin Ailey, New York City Ballet, American Ballet Theater, regional theater companies, all went abroad in an effort to demonstrate America's openness. And what we're seeing here is that 
in Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Doha and all of these uh, amazing cities uh, and, and this constellation of the Emirates, they understand that. They understand that by asserting um, the power of culture, they are in fact asserting their own power as a global player. And so the really unfortunate thing is that in the United States, we are disinvesting in the platforms for soft power. And this is not to say that we shouldn't have a strong military, but a defense system and security will not be complete without an investment in soft power. It certainly won't be successful without an investment in soft power. It's an interesting thing, and, and, and it raises questions in my mind, both for Deborah and, and Carla, because when you say you were in Russia, we just got back from China, and in China, the, 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 uh, uh, probably of all the governments in the world, the Chinese are investing more in, in this kind of soft power than any others. They're building more opera houses, they're building more museums, they're building more concert halls. They're the world's leader right now in classical music, uh, in many respects, in terms of you know new investment, you know, in, in, and 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 that's very exciting. It's a very big market in that regard. And I would say that they're also reaching out to learn from others, which I think is, of course, the finest form of flattery, which is to ask for help, advice, guidance. And I find that that's happening in China quite a bit, too. So they're investing in the infrastructure, they're investing in the training, and they're seeking support from artists from around the world. It's and fascinating. The, and they're not hesitant to do it, right? right. You know, it's, 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 it's very impressive. And their government invests in individual artists. So in the United States, as Bob um, and Deborah know, individual artists are not eligible for grants from the NEA. That program was ended after the dispute over Maplethorpe and a number of artists who some members of Congress found offensive. And so um, it's really, I think, regrettable that other nations see the importance of investing in artists directly, and our government does not. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, Carla, as an artist, you wouldn't object to the investment in artists. But, <laughs> but, wouldn't. but you've spent a lot of time in, I mean, you've sung all around the world. But when you go to China, it's a different experience. Can you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I feel deeply privileged to have had that opportunity. And I think if someone had told me when I was a college student you know, training to be a musician that a lot of my career would take place in China, I never would have imagined that. Um, it's certainly an emerging market as an artist, and especially, I would say, as a classical artist. And I think you know, it's interesting because my first trip there was as a State Department cultural envoy. And... What I got the most out of in that experience was the listening component. I think I was, you know, I was sent there certainly with that mission of promoting American culture, did a Bernstein program, you know, all all kinds of repertoire that, that we know and love here. But what I took away was what I learned from them and their songs and their tradition. Hmm. And it was interesting in that someone who heard me there invited me back to sing the title role in Carmen, which is an opera that's extremely popular in China. It was one of the first pieces uh, that really was celebrated publicly after the Cultural Revolution. And um, I've since, I think, performed Carmen there five or six times. And that particular role and that piece is what has 
created this this uh, friendship, I would say, between myself and some of the Chinese orchestras and concert halls such as the NCPA and Guangzhou Opera, that relationship. And what I really feel very thankful for in particular is that those relationships have not been one-offs. They have been lasting relationships. And that's special because the more that you get to work with someone, the deeper you can go. So now when I go back, I, I have a relationship with the conductor. I know the orchestra members. I know some of their children. I go into their schools. I not only talk about some of the Chinese songs I've learned, and, and when I present an American song, there's a depth, there's a friendship uh, that has been established through that listening. And I think they really see the value in that as opposed to sort of a one-off relationship. They're interested in, as Deborah said, deepening relationships with individual artists. Are you feeling jealous of all this yet, Bob, as you listen to what's going on in all these other places and you're, and you're going around because there really is, I mean, you know, here, here in, in, in the UAE, they built a new opera house in Dubai and they sold it out in three hours. It's not the kind of thing that's happening in the U.S., but it does lead to a different, interesting kind of conversation that maybe all of us ought to get into. We had a little bit of yesterday and that is when you're in the U.S., people go, God, I wish we had the government funding more. And when you're overseas, you have, God, I wish we had the private philanthropy that we have in the U.S. And, you, you know, there is this kind of tension about what's the right mix. Um, and I, I'm just wondering what your perspective is on that, since the, the, the current U.S. mix ends up providing so much day-to-day aggravation for you. It, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that, first of all, I, I actually am quite a fan of the mix of art opportunities that we have in the United States. Um, I, I think that it's a different system entirely than the rest of the world. Our system, in many other parts of the world, government money is subsidy. In the United States, it's not subsidy. It's incentive. A little tiny bit of government money is used to leverage other dollars. And uh, I, I have concerns about that system, but you know, you look at the nonprofit arts in America, it's about $61 billion collectively if you add up the 100,000 uh, nonprofit arts organization budgets. Most of that money, 60% of it, comes from what people sell, earned income. And uh, 60% is too much. It's moving too much toward what the, what the private part of the arts world, the commercial arts world, does, which is, which is ruled by the marketplace. 30% of it comes from uh, the, the private sector, mostly individuals. And then the last 10% comes from the public sector, mostly local, state, and then federal. So it's a very, very different system than the rest of the world. And it has... Uh, some advantages you you can't you can't put an arts organization out of business in America because it's completely diversified. They can put themselves out of business, and or the market can put them out. But you have that that particular situation where I think every sector, private sector, the the different funding pieces there, and public sector, federal, state, and local, all could do better if they had a better understanding of the ultimate value of the arts. The, the value of the arts is not just decorative, it's transformative in communities, uh, in, in uh, children's lives, in schools. We, we have a backlash that's been with us for the entire history of our country, with some people not necessarily getting that and pushing for less of everything, less government, less private, um, less education. And, and so our, uh, our work is largely to, to provide education about these values of the arts. Uh, I think our work in America 
constant values. But the other thing that's interesting is that we've had explosive growth uh, of arts organizations in America. These 100,000 nonprofit arts organizations were some 7,000 when the nonprofit world got the boost of the National Endowment for the Arts uh, back 50 years ago. And so um, we have all of these things to choose from, each one of them very, very tightly budgeted and dependent on dollars from different sources, but all of them mission-driven, not bottom-line driven. So once again, they don't go out of business. They stay, and they're there, and there's lots of creativity to choose from. So that's exciting, and it's frustrating. And uh, we, we see these elected officials at all these levels slowly getting it. Um, Carla uh, has come with me to the United States Conference of Mayors where we make a presentation. Carla talks as well and sings and the, the mayor's standing ovation and they go back. Standing ovations or crying makes them go back and do appropriations. And that's what I love. To Carla see made the mayors cry. She made the mayors <clears throat> cry and, uh, and money flowed. Uh, but that's the, that, that education to decision makers is critical on every front. We also did it with the Council on Foundations and with the, the independent sector. And that uh, once again, those kinds of uh, understandings and lessons from other parts of the world or other parts of our own country are making an impact on these decision makers, but we can't stop. We've got a, a ways to go. Well, so, you know, what, what's implicit there, and I think there's something quite interesting when you said gone from 7,000 to 100,000, Deborah said, wow, I didn't know that. And, and, you know, it suggests to me, as is happening almost everywhere else, technology is driving a change in the models. I mean, and it's driving a change in the models in many, many different ways. It now allows a small entrepreneur to start themselves up. It, it uh, forces an opera company to ask the question, should we televise this or, you know, put it out there on the web versus, you know, just doing it live. It forces people to ask the question, um, uh, you know, should we allow people in the audience to, you know, tweet out or, or you know, capture this on film as, as other sectors do. It's really, you know, I mean, th there are a few sectors that are as dependent on, new t on technologies of distribution as the arts, and they're all changing, and the business models are changing. And I'm just wondering, and I'm going to ask each of you a question, you know, about this. Like, how is this changing the way your world works, and what do you think the big challenges are? I'll start with you, Darren. Well, I think it's uh, technology and also what inequality is doing because technology, as in the larger community, is creating uh, haves and have-nots. I think it's fair to say that the arts community in America is quite vibrant, as Bob says, but within the arts community, uh, there is huge variation in financial stability and long-term sustainability. So I would assert that uh, there are far too many organizations that are under-resourced and that live really hand-to-mouth. And, and that's okay, except as public funding is decreasing, the role of the private donor becomes more important and the role of the private donor in determining priorities for the public becomes, I believe, potentially problematic. And we have to grapple with that. 
I actually don't think it's good for a democracy to have a wealthy elite of arts patrons um, in the in the sort of you know Medici idea of of arts patronage determining what's best for the public. I think there is a role for government to play because the government platform is is the we the people platform. It is the way in which we collectively express our commitment to our culture writ large. And the more we turn that responsibility over to a group of private donors, I think the more problematic it is for our democracy because the reality is that most arts funding goes to wealthy arts institutions. And as inequality in our society manifests more, that dichotomy will become more exacerbated. And I believe that's very problematic. And while wealthy institutions, of course, feel the pressure uh, to raise money and to meet uh, budget, wealthy institutions have the capacity to do that. Organizations that serve low-income communities, rural communities in America, communities of color, don't have wealthy arts patrons. They don't have boards made up of philanthropists. And therefore, their dependence on public support is essential. And so when we say we're no longer going to support the arts through public mechanisms, what we're really saying is that we're not going to support the arts for most of America, because the arts will be there for those of us who are affluent, those of us who are part of the 1%, we'll have access to the arts. We can pay for it. But what about the rest of America? What are the implications for our democracy? And, you know, that raises this interesting tension. I don't want to put you on the spot, Deborah, by framing the tension, but if you run a big arts institution, you run a, one of the biggest arts institutions, the National Center for the Arts, um, you have a choice. You know, you go out, you raise money. And you end up having to be responsive to a group essentially of old, rich, white people who do a lot of, well, okay. but I mean, you, you, can, you can say that, and I'll shake my head. Okay, well, <laughs> but shake no, your no, head. But, but, I, but you, I know, know, I think you that, know what I'm saying, that yeah. there's a group of people out there, maybe not in your institution, let's put it abstractly, who, you know, many of them are doing it for social reasons. Many of right. them are sort of going back to the well and want to see their old favorites, you know. And so from an artistic perspective, they may constrain you and right. so forth. On the other hand, as Darren says, the rest of society doesn't have a vote in this except through, you know, the marketplace. And the, and, and, the, and, the, and the problem there is some things are out of the reach of a lot of people and, 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 the, and the mechanisms haven't seemed to work in certain areas. And so I'm just wondering how you resolve that tension. I have a lot of thoughts about what Darren said and what you've just asked here and um, couldn't agree more, in fact. And I have, over my career, worked in large and small organizations. And more importantly, I have collaborated with them, large and small organizations. And I've been a volunteer in small organizations. And I think the, the reason I care a lot about the NEA is exactly the point that you've made, which is that so often it's funding those institutions 
that don't have the philanthropists who are available for them. Um, and the work that is done in a rural community in a small town that desperately needs the arts because that is the way people can come together, they can celebrate their lives, they can acknowledge their sorrows, their griefs, they can come together for understanding. The arts are the source that we as institutions or as individuals go to every time there is a moment to mark of joy, of sorrow, of celebration, whatever it may be, the arts are vital for not just who we are as individuals, but understanding one another. And I think the I've, I've actually, in my two and a half years at the Kennedy Center, I've not yet had to defend why we're a big organization. Um, because we try to, I try to bring to my job every day, thinking about each individual who walks through the door, uh, either as a visitor to John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, because it's the memorial to John F. Kennedy, or because they are coming for a particular program. But one of the things that we do that I find is really meaningful um, that many people don't realize is that we actually go into cities, large and small, and convene leaders of those cities, whether it is the superintendent, uh, school administrators, the the city leadership, the arts uh, leaders, the civic leaders, the philanthropists, and help them understand how they can build arts programs in their schools so that we can actually reach every single small town mid-sized town across America and help them understand how they can stand on their own feet, support the arts and the arts for everybody in that community through schools and having every child have access to the arts. Because my personal belief is that every child in America, I can't touch the whole world, but I can try to have that happen in America, should be able to have access to the arts. Every child has some sort of access to um, sports, uh, they even get meals every once in a while, but they don't necessarily all have an opportunity to express themselves through the arts, to have the basic learning, the basic sort of language of the arts. And if we can help children have that access to the arts, maybe even in our own country, where we are so divided and we have so much misunderstanding between people, we can have greater understanding if we can have every child have an opportunity um, to have access to the arts. Well, I want to I want to swing back to to the issue of the arts as soft power and the arts driving change. But I want to pick up on the points that you made and ask a question to Carla and ask a question to Bob. I, I want to ask you a question. At, in, in, you know, first of all, respond to anything that Darren or Deborah have said that that's of interest to you. But but from the artist's perspective, there's a different set of issues. And, and, and in terms of this business model. And one of the things that I've heard you talk about sometimes is the, the absence of a middle class of artists. And it, it echoes what Darren was talking about. And I think that might be, you know, an interesting perspective because it does lead, you know, to, when you talk about it sometimes, you talk a little bit about it offering an opportunity, which I think people miss. Yeah, I guess I want to respond to a couple things and tie to that question. You started with a question about the challenges that we're faced with with the technology that's available. Obviously, the technology that's available now is what's changing the world. It's what's giving us the opportunity to have this global discussion on what does global culture even mean now that we're all connected, which is something I know David talks about. 
And so I guess that for me is where this question that you've just asked began. What are the challenges that come with that rather than the opportunities? And as I looked at that as an individual artist, you may be surprised to hear my answer. But I'll tell you. I'm not going to be surprised. But go ahead. <laughs> challenges are the cats. It's that simple. When I go on YouTube and I look at what are people looking at now for entertainment, which is a role that artists obviously are associated with, they're turning to cats, people. That's what they're looking at. They want to see a two-minute cat video. And ironically, cats, you know, for whatever reason, we have equal amount of cats and dogs in the world, and cat videos are more popular four-to-one than dog videos. So go figure. Cats. It's, it's not the dogs, it's the cats. They are clearly the new entertainers. And I look at that, and I think, wow, I went to school for 10 years. I speak five languages. I've got all this training for my soft palate and on stage and this and that. And here's my neighbor's cat who's got millions of views that I will never, ever get as an artist. So that is a challenge. And I look at that even further, to go back to your question, David, in terms of what I feel is this this surplus of artists that we have extreme talent in every culture that I've had a chance to visit um, this surplus of I think underutilized and perhaps undervalued artists and yet especially in America I would say we have a deficit of the social values that artists intrinsically bring to the table whether that has to do with the discipline associated with being an artist but certainly the empathy the creativity the compassion so therein i think lies a solution to a lot of problems how can we actually use these artists to address these issues and what i found in this is that you know most artists i believe the average and and Please correct me if I'm wrong, Bob. But most artists make about $36,500 a year. That was the average salary for an artist in the United States with a bachelor's degree. And that seemed to be sustainable more or less for five years. Now, again, correct me on the numbers. But when I look at that, of course, you know, that, that's success as an artist. If you ask an artist, what, is that, what does it mean to be successful? It's to make your living off of your art. And then we have the superstars. We have the Lady Gagas and, you know, you two and so forth forth. It's that very, very high echelon. But we're the middle class artist. And how can we break that down to a number? Let's say, I don't know, $75,000 a year. How can we actually use that, that undervalued surplus of artists and maybe in partnership with institutions, whether they're educational, I'm thinking about hospitals, I'm thinking about senior centers, all kinds of social constructs that artists can add value to through their creativity and all of these mm-hmm. intrinsic uh, qualities that they bring to the table. So I see an opportunity. I'd like to see the artist at some point challenge the cats a little more on the YouTube and in other areas. Yeah, no, go look it up. You know, if you look up Placido Domingo's number one YouTube video, and then you look up Mishka, the dog that knows how to say I love you, Mishka's got 150 million views, which is a lot more, you know, and it's, you know, it sounds kind of funny, but the reality is most people view the world right now through a screen and they're making a choice and that choice is going to have a lot of consequences. But another consequence of the technology, Bob, was an issue that I wanted to talk about before I circled back onto this question of driving social change through the arts. And that has to do with in a society that's technologically empowered, what are the skills that you need to succeed? And um, we talk a lot about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And that, you know, if you went to a group of people and you said, is this a national priority? 
they would say, sure, you need STEM, right? But we've also discovered that as we increasingly are digitally empowered, the, the real deficit is in the area of creativity. And creativity comes from studying the arts in the way that Deborah was talking about as essential. And so there is now this recognition that what you really need is STEAM, science, technology, um, engineering, the arts, and math. And there's a growing awareness of that. And I know your organization has been involved in championing it, and I just thought it might be worth talking about. Because I, you know, personally, you know, some, some of the people out there, you know, we have this show called the ER. There are all these ER nerds, which, you know, they're foreign policy nerds that are listening to this show. And at some point they're going, why aren't we talking about Tillerson's trip to Russia? You know, or why aren't we talking about Syria? And the answer is, this is national security. Mm-hmm. This is foreign policy. This is diplomacy. And I think, you know, we, at our peril, ignore that fact. So mm-hmm. that's the context in which I ask the question. So uh, let me come to that second. I want to make a couple of uh, just observations on what's been said so far. The, f- the first is that I'm realizing that I have been barking up the wrong tree politically in trying to get policy experts to respond to Congress when I need to harness the power of cats yes. to do something to get those mm-hmm. kind of metrics uh, up there. I'm, so I believe I'm, work me, I'm sure Deborah's sitting there in the next major production at the Kennedy Center will have We'll have cats. cats. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of cats in it. Well, it is going to come back. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, if cats, I can just but, say, uh, cats the show. Well, cat, cats the, yeah. the musical. The musical, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so, but, what, what, but, but the serious part of that is when we look at uh, the figures for uh, support for the National Endowment for the Arts, it's 46 cents a person, $148 million. It ought to be a billion, easily. And a billion would still put it under every other uh, nation in the Western world that's investing you know, in the arts, uh, a billion dollars and that percentage per person. Which so, is three F-35 fighter planes. Th- if that, probably. Yeah. Well, there's but, about 350. Uh, so um, I, I think that, uh, that that's one of the things that we have to uh, make the case for in, in a bigger way. And you know, part of that, a big part of that is what Darren and Deborah were talking about before. It's the one place that is investing heavily in underserved universally across mm-hmm. our nation. Underserved and uh, populations, rural populations, uh, city populations. So that is something that I think is, it warrants uh, investment by a great nation. The other thing is that we do a thing called the National Arts Index at Americans for the Arts. And what it looks at is a hundred different ways of looking at the cultural sector. One way of looking at the cultural sector does show things like classical music being challenged by people sitting in seats to observe you know, and listen to classical music in, in, in halls. But downloads of classical music are at an all-time high. They're soaring. So the technology side of things shows not a lack of interest, which the other study could be misinterpreted as, but uh, maybe a different way of marketing that's necessary, or education, or something. Um, And we need to do some more work in looking at those kinds of things for um, an an audience that is out there and hungry, but just is looking at consuming in a different way. Uh, So I think technology plays a big role. Coming to the STEM and STEAM subjects, we we do a lot of work with with the conference board conference board, all of the business leaders uh, come for their information, and a study at the conference board showed that the number one thing that uh, businesses in America want in the 21st century worker is creativity. Not science, not technology, not engineering, not math, but creativity. And so uh, the idea of uh, investing whatever monies we're talking about in adding 
arts to curricula, which is what the superintendents said was really important uh, in, in, in their comments on what the conference board had come up with, or whether it is adding art in, in community and in the, the arts as part of the, what we're talking about here at this conference a lot, the, the, the energizing, the animating of um, other systems in community for more creativity. Uh, with technology being part of that, I think it's it's an important investment in the future. Business wants it, communities wants it, uh, want it, and uh, the arts benefit from it. I had the honor. It took nine years of work to get the uh, the law changed that is now the Every Student Succeeds Act, that created STEAM, the arts, as a central piece of advancing education and lifted some of the impediments to local government funding arts in the schools, which was great. And I had the honor of being at the White House for the signing of the ceremony, representing the arts community. And um, I was wonderfully struck by the young man. They had a 15-year-old kid introduce the president. And he was there representing a STEM school. And uh, he was supposed to say how wonderful STEM was. And what he said instead was, but he really loved going to school every day because of the theater and music programs there. And he was so happy that that was in his curriculum. So I thought that was a wonderful, even though it was in the law, hearing that young man say it uh, made the discussion all the more vibrant. But I think that you know, right now in Congress there is a STEAM caucus. And it, it has uh, about a, uh, over 100 Congress people. Which is almost as big as the Hot Air Caucus. The Hot Air Caucus <laughs> might be there, too. But uh, the, um, the STEAM Caucus, uh, uh, though, has the power of uh, Cong Congresswoman Suzanne Bonamici as, uh, as one of its chairs. And uh, she is the one responsible for actually getting the language in the Every Student Succeeds Act. So about the arts. Well, you know, so, so let's go, go back as we wrap up. We've got about 10 minutes to go here. And I want to pick up on an idea or a point, uh, two points. One we were talking about at the beginning, the arts as power for social change. One of the things that came out of this conversation, I think Elise Nelson said something, you can't, the only way to change culture is with culture. Yeah. And a lot of the big issues that are out there are cultural at their roots. The reason we're having this meeting here in the Middle East is because there is a belief here in the UAE that you, you know, the only way to fight extremism is with culture. Uh, we've had conversations here, the only way to fight uh, violence against women and, and raise awareness on gender-based issues because they're so culturally rooted is with the arts. Uh, we had conversations here about how the only way to address climate issues where a lot of these issues have to do with awareness and habits and cultural issues is through the arts. And the, and the list could go on. And yet I also go to the point that Carla made, which is that there is a kind of surplus of artists and a deficit of the skills the artists have. And so there's an opportunity here. And one of the things that creates a kind of a buzz in this meeting, I think, is there are a lot of artists who want to be advocates. They want to be activists. They, they have an entrepreneurial instinct. They, they see the way to use these technologies. And they want to say, look, I can do my art but I can also make a difference. Darren, you run the Ford Foundation, uh, which is providing funding and support for lots of kind of initiatives, not just arts-related initiatives. Do you think that more of those initiatives would do better by forging alliances with artists, by forging alliances with cultural institutions that may bring the message home in a different way? Well, let me first start by saying that I believe if we are to defeat... ISIS, terrorism broadly, we have to understand what the greatest threat to terrorists is. 
There is no greater threat to ISIS, ISIL. It's not a Tomahawk missile. It's a girl who can read. That's the greatest threat to ISIL. And so we as a nation need to really consider our priorities in our investments in our own national security and in our own national interests. I do think that working with artists and arts organizations is key to advancing social progress in America and helping our nation heal. We are divided and we have lost our capacity for empathy and for understanding each other and the challenges that we all face. As an African-American who lives in a big city, it's very important for me to be able to understand what it must feel like to be a working class white person in a rural community where opiate addiction and plagues that we've not seen before in rural America are taking hold. Because I need to be able to understand why we must have solutions that help those communities, just as I'm interested in helping in East New York solve those problems. And, and the arts are a critical way in which we build empathy. In order to have justice in our society, we first must be an empathetic society. We must be a people with a capacity for empathy. And we are losing that capacity by the coarseness of our politics, the crudeness of our public discourse, and the lack of respect that we demonstrate for each other. And so I believe that if we are to solve our country's problems, yes, we must have jobs. And we must improve employment because jobs are about dignity. But jobs alone won't make us a safe and happy America. We've got to understand each other better, and the arts is essential to that. You know, we did a dinner as we were doing the, the run-up to this thing to gain some ideas, and it was a kind of a weird hybrid dinner in Washington. And actually, Darren, you're the only one who wasn't mm-hmm. at that dinner. And I, believe me, I'm I sure you were invited. invited. I'm so oh, sorry. I, no, no, I feel I terrible. Make the sorry. cut, David. Oh, my God. I feel terrible, <laughs> but I'm sure that wasn't the case. That will never but, happen. That well, he will doesn't never, live in Washington. Never, that, will never, that will never happen. And, and but by the way, I'm not sure you missed anything. Because, you know, we went through this dinner and we went around the table and people were talking and talking and talking. And they were saying the same things over and over again, only louder. And at one point, I looked over, and there was Deborah Rudder with a kind of a red face. And she was like, enough with the talking. You know, we have to do something. And it was a very moving moment for me. I was really, I mean, I looked over, Carla was there too, and you both had sort of tears in your eyes. You were like, this talk must stop. We must do something. And, you know, you, you, you've got the Kennedy Center as a, as, a, as a resource for the country. And I know you are doing things where you're saying, look, I can use this resource to make social change, whether it's in education or in some of the issues that Darren was talking about. And I was just, I was just, I thought it would be good to hear about what, what it is you're doing. 
Darren, thank you, because what you just said is really beautiful and what we need to have is inspiration all the time. I've been working as an administrator almost 40 years now. Oh, my gosh. And um, it is remarkable the degree to which artists are stepping forward with fervent voices demanding to tell the stories of what they see happening around them and having as the artistic impulse uh, a reflection of what society is. So today, Bazam Youssef spoke so beautifully about you know, holding the mirror up, which is what I talk about all the time at the Kennedy Centers. Artists hold the mirror up to society and they are showing us what we are doing and what, how we are doing it. And uh, I see that happening so often in so many different art forms. And in fact, I think the art forms are blurring. I think we are no longer about siloed art forms, but they're all sort of mashing up together. And that's really exciting, although it's hard sometimes to tell you exactly what you're going to experience. But primarily artists are here telling stories of what's ha- what they see happening in their world. And whether it is a new opera about human trafficking or a multimedia work on gun violence in neighborhoods or about uh, a school coming together, banding together around a family after a bout of violence in that neighborhood, I see artists today as being being able to tell the story that have a deeper impact than just another one on the news. Because as you say, Darren, we have almost become numb to the grotesque things that are happening in our world, uh, the violence, the crudeness of the conversation. But somehow when it becomes an opera or it becomes a, a jazz evening with young artists or it becomes um, a story is told as Alvin Ailey did this this last year. It has a different impact, and I guess my my uh, fear sometimes is that those who we might need to listen most are not ones listening. I mean, I do believe that society itself is coming together to say, please, we want something else. But those who are making some decisions about where we put our resources, where the focus of attention is, are not the ones who are coming to see that opera or musical theater or dance or new hip-hop. So what I'm trying very hard with whatever kind of platform we have in Washington, D.C., is to offer an ever greater diversity of that um, so that you are seeing different voices at the table. We have a brand new expanded area of presentation in the world of hip-hop. Talk about telling a story that isn't getting told. And if you can tell that story at the Kennedy Center, you're going to have a, a hopefully a megaphone to the to the rest of the world, and particularly the arts world, but the rest of the world. It's the question ultimately always is, how can we get everybody to be listening? And will it actually change some behaviors? We can do it one person at a time, and that's the best hope that we possibly can. Well, you know, it's interesting how each of your stories are sort of pieces of a puzzle here. And I know that, Carla, you have a not-for-profit that's out there And one of the things that you've done that I think is interesting is that you've started to partner with organizations, whether it's Vital Voices or Boys and Girls Clubs, with programs where essentially you you saying, I can use the arts to be a force multiplier for you. I can go and use the arts to go and take your message and help you, instead of giving a speech or offering statistics, reach people at 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 the heart level, whether it's the, you know, either of those two programs. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how that works. 
Sure. I mean, I think for me, it's a journey. Uh, one that started just three years ago when I first met Bob, um, when I won the Sphinx Medal of Excellence. I had had the chance to be a State Department cultural envoy for 10 years, but that work was sort of viewed as on the side, and primarily I was viewed as an opera singer. And yet I found that that work, that social impact work, was what was very dear to my heart. So the question then became how? How how can I change things? How can I configure things? How can I use my voice, both literally and figuratively, to do things that I believe in toward this idea of social impact through the arts? And that's what led me to founding the not-for-profit with the mission of exploring issues of identity and culture through music and through conversation. And, you know, I, I really see this as a journey of going from being an interpreter where my training was to execute what's on the page to the best of my ability, my vocal technique and so forth, but I have a conductor and stage director and of course a composer who are really dictating the creativity. I'm interested in beginning the journey to go toward becoming what I think of as being an artist, which is asking the big questions and exploring the mysterious, the the human condition, if you will, and seeking solutions. And that's where the partnership is so interesting for me because, you know, for instance, in the case of Vital Voices, they're interested in in amplifying the stories of their female leaders that are doing such amazing work in their own right um, at addressing women's equality. And so how can I use my voice? Well, I can. I can create lyrics. I can work with them to create songs that then they can use to amplify and and get people to know their work. That's just one example. But I do want to just take a moment um, before my time is up and thank Bob and Deborah and Darren because I feel that on this journey, I've been very, very fortunate to have people like you three encourage me as an artist to think beyond the box, to explore this this unusual trajectory from being an interpreter to trying to be more than that, be maybe an entrepreneur or an advocate. Go back to the cats. The cats are entertainers. And I believe artists can be more than that. I really think we can be healers and educators and advocates. But it, it does take some guidance and some mentorship, and I really feel very fortunate that all three of you have have provided me with that and that support. So thank you. She wants to, you know, change the world. But also, if you're being an effective social advocate, the cats can't compete with you there. Um, <laughs> well, they can true. only do so <laughs> much. They're right. They're very limited. Distracting. In what that in what they can do. The last word goes to you, Bob. I, I you know I think. This issue, this term that Carla just used, cultural entrepreneurship, is really interesting because the business models have changed. And, you know, the business models in the corporate, you know, it used to be in corporations, uh, there was a big corporation, they had an R&D department, the R&D department came up with an idea that passed it up the chain, they marketed it, they built it, they made it, everything was integrated. And then 20, 30 years ago, that blew up. And the idea became, why invest in the new idea? Well, let some guy in a garage do that. They'll get some venture capital. And then if the idea works, we can invest in it. And I think the business model in the arts has sort of gone in that direction, too. It used to be there was a big record company, there was a big movie company, there was a big something out there that would find an artist and go and provide them with all these things in a vertically integrated way to do it. But now, 
whether it's in the business itself or it's in the advocacy area that Carl is talking about, the, the model says you have to be a cultural entrepreneur. It's not just enough to be an artist. You've got to figure out. And, and a lot of artists don't have the tools to do that. And I'm just, I, I, I think that Americans for the Arts is actually out there helping artists develop those tools. And I think one of the things that I, I think has come up here at Culture Summit is that I think there's more need to do that on a global advocacy basis too. But I just thought this is the last word and I just thought I'd give you a chance to talk so uh, what, what we end up doing and have for half a century is to um, help others help the arts. So essentially the 5,000 local arts agencies are out there supporting in the state arts agencies and uh, all kinds of other mechanisms, business committees for the arts, anything that we can figure out that will help arts organizations and artists uh, thrive. Um, and also in our mission statement going back a half a century, it's creating a climate in which the arts thrive. The climate keeps changing. You know, the climate at one time was more business support or more foundation support or government support. And now the climate has those pieces, but it has partnership and ways, of, entrepreneurial you call it, but different ways of doing uh, business to advance the work of artists. And so I just take a look at the things that I am spending most of my time on and our organization is not the same as it was even 10 years ago. So uh, a partnership opportunity, an entrepreneurship opportunity, uh, arts and healing. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, we're doing a huge amount of work with the arts and, and military, and not just the military, other kinds of trauma. Um, and the work is to find artists, uh, help uh, educate them, help get them involved, so that then they, in partnership with hospitals or military installations, are doing this wonderful work that then in turn helps the, the, uh, the military or the, the people who need to heal be able to, through the arts, have a voice, think differently, uh, get the kind of attention, medical attention that they should get that they won't seek on their own, that kind of thing. The second thing you mentioned earlier, arts education. Okay, so it's education actually, improving education through the arts as part of that education. It's also a massive market for artists. Um, that entrepreneurial side of the artists uh, working in that, that arena is, is critical. Going back to ho hospitals, 50% of American hospitals now have arts programs. That's jobs that artists get that they didn't have uh, you know, 20 years ago. And then um, the idea uh, right now of advocacy. Uh, we're spending a huge amount of time leading the effort to save the federal funding for the arts. But we don't do that by ourselves. Artists. Um, you know, people like Ben Vereen and Josh Groban uh, and uh, Kerry Washington coming into town to help us, or uh, artists like Yo-Yo Ma, who uh, the Kennedy Center has as, as uh, one of its artistic leaders, has been instrumental in helping us with not only the advocacy, but the work in the education front and in the military healing front. So I see this as a time of great opportunity for artists, and I'm hoping that the opportunity is not suppressed by the lack of support from the funding sources that, that need to be there. That's why we're working on those fronts. Well, you know, again, I, as we wrap this up, and as I speak to listeners who tune in twice a week to this, uh, this podcast, it, I want to go back to the point, you know, when we at Foreign Policy look at this issue, we don't see it as a marginal issue. Uh, I had a cover story in Foreign Policy uh, a few days ago uh, called The Urgency of Art. And it's because art and culture are, is a central issue to our enemies. And it's because art and culture is a central force for change in areas 
that are national security issues, whether it's climate change or building bridges or promoting understanding. And it's because as the world gets more and more connected, we are going to face these issues more and more. Uh, we are within 10 years of the first moment in the history of the world where every human being is connected to every other human being and therefore able to touch them via the Internet and to build opportunities, but also it will produce backlash. And so it's going to create new challenges for us. And Carla mentioned earlier the concept of soft power that Joe Nye uh, developed in 1990, which was before the Internet. And I think, as much as I respect Joe Nye, um, that he did a disservice by using the term soft. This is not soft power. This is power. The, 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 the most powerful force on earth are our systems of belief. And the tools that we've got to change our systems of belief are very, very limited. And they fall in the area of the arts, where we can touch hearts, where we can touch hearts and minds, where we can inspire um, and where we can drive cultural change from within. And that's why the kinds of organizations represented around this table, whether it's advocacy organizations or a big arts center or a foundation or artists themselves, really have a frontline role to play in addressing some of the most important issues uh, in foreign policy, whether it's conflict resolution or stabilizing a region, or empowering girls, which in turn, as Darren pointed out, uh, is, is, is the best way to turn back extremism. And I think one of the mistakes that foreign policy professionals make is to discount this. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the mistakes that leaders in certain countries make is to discount this and to push arts off to the children's table and to say that the arts are a luxury item. Uh, and the reason that we've done Culture Summit, the reason that we've convened this, the reason that we increasingly have writing about this subject is that we think we should use the full toolbox of power, as Madeleine Albright, one of our cultural diplomats, refers to it, the full toolbox of, of power uh, in order to you know, drive the kind of changes that are the responsibility of foreign policy leaders. That's why I'm so glad that we've been joined today by Darren and Deborah and Bob and Carla. We hope you come back soon for another episode of the ER. And I assure you, in the future, there will be more on topics like this. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us.